In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. For people who love Jesus more than anyone and anything, Easter is a day of indescribable joy. Imagine, especially if you think you are one of those, imagine the experience of those who had given up everything to follow him, who were convinced he was from heaven, and who had come to fear that he was dead forever. Imagine the event of Easter Sunday. For the average Christian who doesn't love Jesus more than anything else or more than anyone, Easter is still really beautiful. It's a moment to be reminded that perhaps with even more gratitude, God still loves me. He's, he has not been conquered by my sin. He was willing to die for my sin. And he stands victorious. Still an incredible experience. To celebrate that he who died because of me now reveals himself not just to be alive, not just to be God, but to be God who loves me so much that he was willing to die to pay for my sin. That's incredible. And Easter is certainly a day when we we make sure we are together as a family. Nobody's missing. Last night, my brother and sister-in-law, niece and nephew, surprised me and were here for the Easter Vigil Mass. I didn't know they were driving down from New Jersey. We make extra special effort to be together. There are also people who who come to, to be part of Easter just because it's uplifting and beautiful even without necessarily believing. And everyone's welcome today. Certainly the people who come up for Holy Communion are only those who believe and are, are, are living the life and have been fasting. But I'll probably talk long enough that you won't have to worry about the fast. Exactly. So... When we're, when we're not just the, the family with nobody missing, but lots of visitors and lots of people coming in, it's, it's wonderful. It's also a, a time to reappreciate our faith. Christians are accustomed to having their churches turned into museums. Some of them have been turned into mosques over the centuries. But as I prepare a parish pilgrimage for 40 souls, leaving for Italy in two days, I'm painfully aware, again, of those churches where I can take people and there's no entrance fee. It's totally free. 
And sometimes they're the ugly ducklings, but occasionally they're extraordinarily beautiful churches that are kept sacred and only permitted really for sacred uses. And then there are other churches where, because the government owns the churches over there, I'm permitted to come in for free, but other people have to pay to come in. But there are throngs of people. There's no lack of people paying to get into those churches to see the art, the paintings, the sculpture. Christians have become accustomed to seeing their faith as of being relatively useless for eternal purposes, but possibly beneficial in the here and now. I would like, in the next five minutes, to try to turn that on its head. Many of us are afraid of death. And no one would argue with that because most people are. Or many are. Some very thoughtful people who do not believe the Christian message aren't afraid of death, and for good reason. Because if there's no life after death, then there's nothing to worry about. Enjoy your life as much as you can, and have no regrets. Whether they be philosophers or non-philosophers, it makes sense. Christ, in rising from the dead, marks the calendar of human history. 21 years ago, I probably would have presented to you the event of the resurrection as a matter of of great decision. Do you believe? Do you not believe? probably is the most important decision one could make. But the historical reality of the resurrection is, is to me, so obvious it's not even dramatic anymore. The question to me is what, how to respond to it. Of course he rose from the dead. Of course people who are sleeping can't concoct a story that someone was stolen while they were sleeping because they can't possibly know what happened while they were sleeping. But before we get to the obviousness of Christ as the moment of human history par excellence, consider for a moment, though, the possibility that he just died and didn't rise from the dead, and therefore humans are left with their own ideas and myths or legends to guide their life and to shape eternity. Even the very people of God who are anticipating a Messiah didn't necessarily believe that there is a heaven where the good souls can go after death. Death is simply that dark place. Hell simply comes from the German word for dark. 
right? Is there anything better than hellish beer, than dark beer? I don't think so. Hell is just that dark, sad place where you don't want to be, but you can't do anything about it. That's the world. That's the cosmos before Christ, before his arrival, his death, and his resurrection. For those who first responded to the event of our Lord's death and resurrection, again, what could have been described as a moment of deep mystery, of the question of how the apostles translated our Lord's life and teaching into the church throughout the world. Why did they do it? What were their motives? Did they really believe? Where did this come from? Is really, in in the grand scheme of things, the most obviously sincere event of the church's life because the apostles could not have had any ulterior motive in beginning to preach this message to the whole world. They couldn't have made it up because nobody would have made it up. There was nothing in it for them. There was only the guarantee of hatred, persecution, and death. Nowadays, there are plenty of ulterior motives for people to be Christian or to pretend to be. It's comforting. I like it. It gives me community. It might help me get a job. There's... uh, There's... Music and, and Dante, and besides that, we all, you know, get to go to heaven, don't we? Well, no, we don't all get to go to heaven. There's plenty of ulterior motives for someone to go into religious life or into the priesthood or to aspire to become a bishop or even the pope. Fame, attention, Celebrity, money, powerful friends. But for the apostles 2,000 years ago, there were no ulterior motives. No one makes up a religion that holds up as an example poverty, chastity, Celibacy, obedience to God's will, sacrifice, penance, and by the way, the world will hate you and kill you. Nobody makes that up. In my search 
for helping Christians find a way to recapture that original moment of Christianity when the only people who will believe this and do this are the people who really believe it because there is no ulterior motive comes from this realization and and dealing with death in a a few of our families over the last few weeks. Don't be afraid of death if you don't believe. There's a lot of incentive not to believe. Christianity will, will make you be suspicious of your money. Uh, it, it'll encourage you to make great sacrifices detrimental to your career and your, your own personal enjoyment. And if you don't believe that it's true, then don't pretend. There's nothing in it for you, pretending. Only getting less out of life. So don't be afraid of death if you don't believe. If you do believe, you are invited to take up the challenge of eternal life. What is more daring and challenging and exciting? To know the prospect of your life lasting forever and your actions having consequences for all eternity, that's quite a challenge. That's almost scary. It's easier to believe that it's not true. Christ, in proclaiming his resurrection, proclaims his divinity, proclaims that he has conquered sins, and he invites us to realize that your life too, my life as well, will last on for all eternity. There may be a few souls who are confident in their absolute perfection and in their readiness to be among the glory of God and the angels and the saints. For the rest of us, who know that in all honesty, we do love Jesus, but we don't love him as much as we should. This is a great challenge. And the only reason to embark upon this Christian life is because we know it's true. Because we know he did rise from the dead. We know it's the center of human history. We know every computer is counting the years since his incarnation. We know that even the Romans can't account for how this disease didn't die in Judea, but even overwhelmed the capital itself of the empire. We know it's true. We know the challenge is upon us. This will require a great deal of prayer to, be, to, to live up to this challenge of living for eternity, not just for now. This will require grace and the gift of the Holy Spirit. This will require each, other, each other's encouragement. It will require each other affording hope, but also challenging each other and holding each other accountable.
we are embarking on trying to live in such a way that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us so that we can look forward to an eternity which is actually happy, one that we would want to live forever. Most of us don't want to live forever in the state that our soul is currently, even if we're convinced we're in the state of grace. Because the only thing we would want to live forever is absolute perfection. In a moment, instead of praying the creed, we will renew our baptismal promises and you will be showered by the baptismal water of the Easter Vigil. I encourage you to to take up the challenge of eternal life and to, and to live with courage and, and, and to be resolute that when we, when we fall, we get up right again. And when we see others fall, we help them up as well. Sincerely and truly, I wish you a happy, blessed, and a faith-filled and a holy Easter. Amen.